This is a positive bill. We've seen school districts embrace it across the state. I think this is going to help. And I'm just calling on districts who aren't going to step up right away. Do the right thing. My district here, they're fighting over what color the sky is every day. And we have 50,000 kids in these districts and right here in our home city who want to go back. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. And this week's sponsors, the California Endowment and the Sobrato Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm Jonathan Sterwald. That was Assemblyman Kevin McCarty from Sacramento speaking on behalf of the bill, which the legislature passed overwhelmingly this week, to nudge school districts to bring back more students for in-person instruction. It took more than two months since Governor Newsom first proposed a school reopening plan with $2 billion in incentive grants for the governor and the legislature to negotiate something and to get to this point. Basically, what the bill does is reward schools that start bringing kids back to school beginning April 1st, which is nearly a month from now. They'll get hundreds of dollars per student if they do so, starting with the earliest grades. And if they don't, the money that they would have gotten from the incentive fund will be cut 1% per day until May 15th. After that, they'll get nothing. And one of the big questions is how much difference these funds will make. Will there really be enough of an incentive to encourage schools to reopen that are facing multiple challenges in doing so. Remember, these funds will be in addition to millions of dollars that schools have received or are going to receive from the CARES Act that Congress approved, and much more money they're likely to receive from a $4.6 billion fund the state legislature also approved this week for dealing with the impact of the pandemic over the next 15 months or so. Yeah, that's all part of the same deal. In addition, Lewis, they'll get several thousand dollars per student or an average out of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that President Biden proposed and Congress was poised to pass just as we record this podcast. Well, back to Sacramento. Many Republicans and some parent groups are very unhappy with what was approved this week. They say it doesn't go nearly far enough. In fact, the governor and his fellow Democrats should have done much more, much sooner during the pandemic. Republicans in particular, seeing an opportunity here with a recall campaign looming, says it's all Governor Newsom's fault and he should have issued a decree of some kind opening schools. Well, that's easy to say. Of course, we remember a couple months ago in December and January, it looked pretty bleak as far as reopening schools and not sure decree would have worked. But, you know, even Democrats acknowledge that this was not a perfect bill, but it will push forward the momentum that's already been started as school districts start to reopen, at least the earlier grades. And uh, it'll happen before around April 1st. Today, we'll talk with some parents, uh, one who is grateful that lawmakers stepped up on this issue and another who is really critical. But first, let's get the perspective of Bob Nelson. He's a superintendent of the state's third largest district, which is Fresno Unified. Just two months ago, he was heavily critical of Newsom's original plan, but now he says it's pretty much on target with his district's timeline to phase in sending students back to class. And John, I think you're going to have to move to uh, your laundry room or something, right? Because we now have a tree trimming operation going on. So I understand it's a bit of an echo chamber, but bear with us and let's hear from Superintendent Nelson from Fresno. Welcome, Superintendent. Thank you for having me back on the EdSource podcast. So what a difference a few months in the decline rate of COVID 
can make. In January, you were on a show and you were strongly opposed to the plan that the governor had presented in late December. And you said at the time you didn't like it, the fact that state funding was being used for testing and you felt that there was too much testing required. And now I think you're complimenting the governor's plan and that you have negotiated a return to school. Tell us what changed to make you more amenable to the new proposal. Yeah, I think first and foremost, the reality of COVID in the Valley is very different. At the time the original press conference went down between Christmas and New Year's, we were in the case counts of 60 to 70 per 100,000. So in a much different place from a COVID perspective and also some value added propositions in the Valley. We now have kind of universal access to vaccinations to all of our educators who request one. Uh, that's happening this week, literally hundreds and thousands of our educators being vaccinated. So there was, to some degree, we treated 1B in the vaccination schedule as like a hierarchical order with educators on the bottom. That is very different now. And teachers and educators of all classifications are having a universal opportunity to be vaccinated. And that that's a game changer. And this is different. It changes the level of fear. And also we have support from the California Endowment in terms of doing a rapid antigen testing process, which helps provide safety and security for our folks too. We have the same testing protocol that was used in the NBA playoff bubble. So we're excited about that. So the bottom line is you're going to meet the governor's deadline of April 1st to return? Yes. I mean, obviously, April 1st is in the middle of our spring break. We would actually contemplate an April 6th return, which would be the Tuesday following the spring break for us. There's still some gaps between our revised side letter. Originally, our side letter called for a return in the orange tier. We moved that to a return in the red tier. But there's not direct alignment with the passage of SB 86 in terms of the phase in plan, like how quickly um, young people would go back to school in that scenario. So we're actively discussing that now. Uh, to figure out how to maximize our relationship to the governor's plan. At minimum, it's probably about for Fresno, if 25 million is the totality of what that plan would allow, uh, we would be in our current phasing plan would be 20 million of that 25. So, Bob, you said 20 million out of 25, which means you will have to forego some of the money if you return later in April. For us, you know, it's less about maximizing the funding resource than it is about just trying to get kids back into school and trying to normalize life in the Central Valley. Because if schools aren't normal, nothing really feels normal. Superintendent, you were already moving to open schools at the beginning of April. So how much difference has this plan actually made to what you're planning to do? We've talked to some other districts and they say, well, finding the money has really not been the biggest obstacle to opening schools. Compared to the CARES Act, contributions that our district is going to receive, the money from this specific SB 86 is not necessarily the driving factor. I will say it's, it has created a conversation around having some statewide standards for which everybody needs to adhere. That part's good because previously, and what you've heard me say is having 1,037 different districts each individually negotiating what that return looks like is creates a lot of chaos and cross-comparative. Uh, we're not going to lockstep ourselves into the plan in order to maximize the funding resource. Like, for us, we're going to simulcast for the kids that don't want to go back. We have a segment of our community that does not want to go back in person, but I don't necessarily want to sever all those kids from their teachers who are going back. So some portion of them is going to be present in the classroom, and the other portion is still going to be present in distance learning. And then we're going to have a hybrid model flopping back and forth about who's in class on any given day with the intent of giving every kid the opportunity to do that. But you're able to sustain distance learning at a, at a reasonably high level uh, as well as do this in person? We have about 120 teachers kind of piloting it right now, trying to give us feedback in live time, like how do you do this and do it better? 
another 750 teachers that are going back to provide additional supports in person on the Mondays because they just want to be back with their kids and they know they don't want to send their kids on to the next grade level if they believe they can't read well enough or they don't have full content knowledge. So we actually are going to have 10,000 kids back in before the governor's plan in this in this April 6th date even hits, right? We have one out of seven kids back already and forget sports, which is also back, which is fascinating to me that the one area we actually got statewide guidelines in quickly was sports. So with regard to the governor's plan, was it superintendent that he encouraged the conversation and really speeding up the timeline? Or do you think it was simply removing the obstacles that were a problem to start with that, in fact, his his plan had presented? I think John is probably more of the latter than the former. I think it provides a, a foundation on which conversations can be had. Like if there is the combination of SB 86 plus universal vaccination accessibility plus COVID rates going down, that boxes in folks who persist in a belief that there's no possible return plan. And I think the governor's plan, at least, if anything, broaches a conversation to say, hey, this is what we want as a state. That gives individual municipalities and school districts the opportunity to go back and say, hey, going back to school is really important. And that that adds some value. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with Superintendent Bob Nelson of Fresno Unified. Good luck going back to school. It's not going to be easy logistically, but at least you have a pathway to return. Well, and honestly, none of it's been easy. So I'm thankful that it's not easy, but we also have kids going back to school. That's a good outcome for now. Let's move south from Fresno and hear from Scott Davison. He's a parent from Carlsbad who is also active in Open Schools California. That's an emerging statewide parent group that's been on the front lines of trying to get more schools to open to in-person instruction. Welcome, Scott. Thank you both. Well, Scott, you are a parent in Carlsbad Unified. That's near San Diego. You have a kid in the Carlsbad schools? Yes, one son who's in eighth grade, 13-year-old. And uh, what's the situation in Carlsbad? As of today, he is on day 355, I think, of, of distance learning. So he has not been back to campus since the schools were closed back on, on March 13th. And the plans right now is we're hoping for a waiver from the state so that we can reopen sometime next week for hybrid learning. But we're waiting to find out. If not, you know, we're hoping once we get back into the red tier, uh, you know, which could be in a couple more weeks, we think that maybe he'll go back. Okay, well, now this legislation that just uh, was approved in the legislature is providing financial incentives for districts to reopen uh, middle and high schools once they go back into the red tier. It sounds like you guys will be going back into the red tier shortly. And we know that Open Schools California came out pretty strongly against that bill. Is that still your feeling? Are you are you still unhappy with that uh, legislation? Yeah, unfortunately, yes, because I think at the end of the day, it's not going to move the needle much in terms of getting some of these schools that haven't opened to actually open. And so what we've really seen is that it's not so much a matter of funding, but just a lack of willpower or will to reopen. Your district was open for elementary school kids since September, one of the few, probably not that many districts in the state, right. certainly in a larger area, were had open schools. So what, what was the stumbling block then? in middle and high schools, and why wouldn't this help at least some? 
Yeah, and so in our school district, at the very beginning when we reopened elementary schools, the the reason we didn't reopen middle and high schools was simply a logistics issue of the school board not thinking that the middle and high schools would be able to have as much in-person, you know, live instruction if they were back two days a week versus being virtual for five days a week. So they thought that, you know, this kind of virtual instruction for five days a week was preferable to in-person instruction for two days a week and then purely remote instruction for another three days a week. And so that was their initial impression. I think, you know, very quickly, they realized that that wasn't the case and that it was better to have kids back on campus in classrooms. And so they did pivot very quickly to coming up with a hybrid model to getting kids back on campus, but were thwarted by a lot of resistance from the teachers union. And so, again, I guess the, the bottom line is the, the legislation provides funding that we don't need. We've already you know spent all the money that we needed to to get our hybrid model in place. And uh, I'm sure we'll take the money, but it's not going to help us open any further than what we're already planning to do. So what are the requirements, Scott, is that in order to receive the money, is that a grade, 7th to 12th, has to open as soon as the district turns to red, which could be soon in San Diego. And I think the theory, at least, is once you get a toehold in and parents get used to it, students get used to going back for one grade, then additional grades will open and you may have, you know, an open middle school and an open high school or schools soon. What do you think of it? You don't think it's going to happen that way or what? I like the idea in theory. It makes sense that if you if you get them to open one grade and they see that it works, that they'll expand to another one. But it, in practice, it's not what happens. You know, is that in practice, if, if the school districts are allowed to reopen, they just don't do it because they're too afraid of, of the risk and they just think that it's not safe. And so they would prefer to just avoid further reopening. And so I think, you know, our disappointment from a statewide level is that we really felt the bill should have mandated an expansion of that, that if you're going to start off with one grade that, you know, that you indicate that in two weeks you expand to another and that, you know, you, you try and get there slowly, but, but mandate something as opposed to just offering incentives, which we haven't seen really work. Well, vaccinations was another issue. And soon by the governor's decree, and now it's part of the legislation, that vaccines must be offered to teachers so at least all teachers have the opportunity to get them probably within the next month. Do you think that that will deal with some of the resistance that you've been seeing from teachers? Yeah. And again, I hate to be negative on all of this, but but I think, the again, the school districts where you know they were already back or planning to go back, then you didn't really see much resistance from the teachers on, on requiring vaccinations to go back. You know, and like I said, our elementary school teachers have been back since September without any issue, without really ever complaining or demanding vaccinations. And then you see other school districts like San Diego Unified, just south of us, where the teachers are demanding, you know, vaccinations and, and then you know, another two weeks after that before they will go back. So we'll see. You know, it, that could be the best part of it, but we're not so encouraged. Okay, the, you're not happy with this legislation. What should the state have been done or what should they be doing now? I mean, should the governor be decreeing that schools just open, which I think probably is a difficult thing given all the differences in school districts throughout the state, but what should have happened? You know, unfortunately, I think that is probably the only good option we have at this point is for the governor to just issue a mandate. And it can either be a new executive order that requires schools to reopen, like you saw, you know, governors in Maryland and and Arizona do and Iowa do very recently, where they just 
indicate that everybody has to reopen in a few weeks. Or I, I think he could also do it the opposite way, which is to kind of declare an end to the pandemic emergency where all of these restrictions that have been issued by the state in terms of case rates and thresholds and tiers just kind of go away and allow school districts to reopen without all of these you know, re- requirements and restrictions and safety measures that have been constraining them from reopening when, when many of them were willing to. Well, you represent parents who really think that school should be open now, but as you indicated first when you opened, there are plenty of parents who don't and don't feel that they want to send their children back, and they don't have to if, in fact, schools were to reopen. That's part of the law. But by letting all these restrictions go, is that going to help build confidence of parents that they will send their kids back thinking that schools are safe? You know, I think that's a good point, which is that I think what our school districts really need to do and what the state and the Department of Health and our county health departments really need to do is start outreaching to these parents who have been convinced for the past you know, 12 months that schools aren't safe. And they need to start telling them and showing them that they are. And they need to start indicating that, yes, you know, we have a few basic safety mitigation measures that can be put in place and that will allow schools to very safely reopen and try and, you know, get some of these students and parents who are are not comfortable with going back to school, comfortable with going back to school. And I think that is, you know, a responsibility of these local districts. We've been talking with Scott Davison, parent from Carlsbad Unified, speaking on behalf of Open Schools California, a statewide parent group pushing to get schools open more rapidly. Thanks for talking with us today. Absolutely. For a different perspective, we have on the line Alana Levitt. She's a parent who has a first and fifth grader at Santa Monica Malibu Unified. She also brings an early ed perspective. She's associate director of the Early Childhood Center at Kielat Israel in Pacific Palisades. Welcome, Alana. Hello. So, Alana, you've been experiencing all of this distance learning regimen firsthand, right? Yes. Um, my two daughters are in elementary school, and they've been remote learning since our school closed last March. And your school district has not opened yet for in-person instruction? There are a few children that have been admitted back who require one-on-one attention. You know, we try to reach the high-need children first, and we're looking forward to returning to school when it's safe. As a parent, I'm very eager for my kids to get back to school, and I also recognize that it takes a whole lot of planning to get there. And so I appreciate our principal and her plan to start with a program we call Distance Learning Plus. So the plan is just one afternoon a week. Is that what I heard? Yes. You know, it's a it's a pilot program and it allows the kids to start to get comfortable being back at school. And it's going to help administration and all of the teachers learn these new systems. A lot of parents would be outraged or upset that the kids are only going back for like one afternoon a week. So let me ask you about what is your take on this effort now in the legislature to encourage school districts to bring more students back? I appreciate that Sacramento is pushing it. You know, they're getting a lot of pressure from parents and parents are mobilizing. But again, as an early childhood educator, child care centers have been open. Many of them since the start of the pandemic have never closed. So if early childhood educators have been working without vaccination and often without a prioritization of vaccination, like a lot of K-12 teachers have received, you know, if we can do it, then I, I want our K-12 children to be given the same opportunity. 
At least some parents feel that the legislature and the governor should have done much more. But then there are other people on the other side who say, well, there's been a reality out there. We have a pandemic. People are dying. So uh, this is not something that can be easily done. Where, where do you come down on that front? I think anyone who really sees the nature of this full scope of the pandemic, who, who sees the inequality that's taking place, who knows how complicated it truly is to what we're doing in this time, it's not black and white. It's not send kids to school and wash our hands of it. It's going to take time to get there. How are your kids doing? How have they managed? How have you managed? It's obviously for every parent and family, it's been a, a very big challenge. I also constantly have to recognize and check my own privilege because I have a grandparent who comes and facilitates Zoom school for my daughters at school. I am among one of the few and fortunate mothers and parents who was able to continue in my career and haven't had to leave the workforce due to lack of childcare. It is challenging, but my, my family is extremely fortunate. If nothing during this pandemic, I've learned a lot more gratitude and, and recognizing the need to help the rest of our country and, and our state to help these children and families thrive like we've been able to. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Alana Levitt. She's a parent of a first grader and fifth grader and a preschooler. So uh, you've had your hands full. Uh, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. John, I think the big question now is how much difference the legislation that was approved in Sacramento this week will make. Right now, the majority of students in California are still in distance learning. I mean, can you see this even cutting that percentage in half to, let's say, 40% of students left in distance learning? Well, you know, it all depends how you look at it, Lewis, because ultimately it's parents' choice. They can send their kids back or not, even under this law. So if you believe the surveys, maybe 50% of the parents in many areas have no intention of sending their kids back right now. They don't think it's safe enough. But as far as districts are concerned, how many of districts will actually follow this law and which is a matter of choice, not mandate. How many districts will actually open up? I think for sure, probably elementary grades, because it's already happening. Middle and high school, eh, I think it's going to be problematic. You know, the bill removes some of the obstacles. There may be more vaccines for teachers, you know, and massive asymptomatic testing will not be required. That was what districts objected to. But at the same time, it's complicated to open up uh, middle schools and high schools. So I'm not sure. Another issue that really concerns me is how much difference is this really going to make if students only get back mid-April, perhaps towards the end of April? It does seem awfully late in the school year. Yeah, I think so. Momentum's building on its own, for sure. But I think part of it is, what are you going to do with those two months? Is it going to be just a return to a typical full class the way you did before, or do you recognize the pandemic has had a huge effect on students? And so maybe the important thing is the transition to get students used to being with each other again and feeling good about going to school. For that reason alone, I think it's worthwhile in most grades, even if it's six weeks, eight weeks. I think we're all going to have to dig deep and uh, to try to do something that we haven't done before. We ran a commentary this week by Tyrone Howard, professor at UCLA, grew up in Compton putting forward the notion of radical care, that this is really a time where we're going to have to think deeply 
about what we're going to do to make sure that we don't lose too many kids as a result of this pandemic, radical care, to do whatever it takes to make sure that kids succeed. One thing we haven't talked about, Lewis, is in fact that many of the districts that will be reluctant to open are some of those most affected by the COVID pandemic and that the families are most reluctant to send their kids back and they may open later. As a result of that or anticipating that, much of this money from the state and particularly the federal government is really going towards low-income kids, English learners. That's the way it's designed. And so the kids who will need it most will be getting most of the money under either the state or the federal program. It's a recognition that COVID has had a different impact depending where you lived. And of course, more money doesn't necessarily translate into good education programs. So that's going to be another key to make sure that the funds are spent in a way that makes a difference and on the most effective programs. Absolutely. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. Stay well. We'll be back next week. <laughs>